This podcast is brought to you by Energetic Insurance. Energetic Insurance is the easy button for commercial solar. It's kind of like a FICO score in residential solar for commercial rooftop solar. This enables savvy developers and investors to quickly finance commercial solar projects and turn around their portfolio refinancings faster. Go to energeticinsurance.com GTM to submit your projects today. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by CorePower. CorePower is a leading manufacturer of high-density, high-voltage energy storage solutions for utility, industrial, microgrids, and mission-critical markets. The Mark I storage system offers market-leading energy density while maintaining lower installation and operation costs, and you can sign up for deliveries which begin in spring. Find out more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E power.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, one of the world's largest oil companies, BP, gets a new CEO and does a 180-degree turn on climate commitments. How does a publicly-owned company decide if it's not going to grow its core product? And how do you reduce the carbon intensity of a hydrocarbon business? We'll talk about whether BP is for real. Then natural gas is suddenly in the hot seat. For gas-only utilities, one pathway is clear. They have to figure out how to develop renewable gas. But what are the limitations, and how will the battle over natural gas connections play out? Then another reversal, this time in Virginia. The state legislature is right in the middle of setting some really strong goals for offshore wind and storage, and they've got a governor who wants to sign it. Who would have guessed we'd see the Dominion state promising such major goals, even if they are decades down the road. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are with me as always. Catherine is in Washington, D.C., although she resides in Virginia, so we're going to talk about her home state. She's the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions. How are you? I'm great, and I'm a lifelong resident. I was born and raised in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Well, it seems like just yesterday we were talking about how dismal the politics we're in Virginia, and now all of a sudden we've got this crazy amount of activity. Yeah, it's super exciting. I'm I'm really happy and proud. Wait, what do we what do we say? Elections matter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Co-hosts matter too, and the other co-host is Jigger Shah. He's the president of Generate Capital. He's with us from where are you from, Jigger? I never asked before we start recording. <laughs> I'm at home in Bethesda, Maryland. In Bethesda, just neighboring DC. There. How are you? I'm excited. This is a action-packed episode, and there's just so much stuff going on that we've had to leave like stories we would have covered on the cutting room floor. Oh, my gosh. My free electron a few weeks ago was all about the crazy amount of news and developments happening already this year. And once again, we're facing a week with some of the biggest news stories that we've ever faced on this show. So the progress continues. Story number one is all about BP. The P is, of course, for petroleum. Now, BP once said it wanted to get beyond petroleum more than a decade ago, but that strategy failed. And now BP has a new CEO, Bernard Looney. He came in recently and announced almost immediately that the company is going to try to offset or eliminate all of its carbon emissions by 2050. Looney also said that he wants a 50% reduction in carbon intensity And he says BP will just depend less on oil production for its revenue and continue to ramp up in clean energy. And finally, it's going to support carbon taxes or 
climate-related policy and pull out any money from climate-denying trade organizations. Now, this is a big deal for a company that has a very spotty record, but there are not many details yet. And Looney says that those details will come in September. So, Jigger, we know that you used to work for BP. We have seen this movie before when BP attempted to rebrand as Beyond Petroleum in the early 2000s. Is this any different? Yeah, I think it is different, right? So, What about it? I think what happened uh, under John Brown was that there was a realization on John Brown's part that this was a megatrend that BP had to figure out, that it didn't know what it was doing, but it really had to figure it out. And John was, I think, Lord Brown, actually, I mean, was very dedicated to doing it. You know, Tony Hayward... Well, remind us who Lord Brown is. So Lord Brown was the longest the longest CEO in BP's history. I think he was CEO for 20 years. He found the Prudhoe Bay, uh, Alaska find, um, which is really what made BP as a corporation, and, you know, became CEO in the late 80s and basically never missed a quarterly earnings report until sort of the end of his tenure. Um, but was heralded as probably one of the most powerful oil CEOs in modern times. And, and you know, when you think about the people who came after him, right, Tony Hayward and others, um, Bob Dudley was actually my boss before I left BP Solar. Um, and so it was one of those things where where people kind of ridiculed John Brown after he left, thought that he was distracted by non-oil pursuits and the Beyond Petroleum stuff. And I think what the data has shown is that pretty much every single unconventional oil project that BP has embarked on um, in the last 10 years has lost it money, pretty much every single one. And they are now worried that with the coronavirus and everything else going on, that oil prices might actually stay at $40, $50 a barrel forever uh, because we've hit peak demand, which was you know, another artifact that was crafted by a BP guy, right? So one of my bosses at BP was Atul Arya, who's now at the Cambridge Energy Research uh, Group. And and they, you know, he's crafted this peak demand scenario, which I think a lot of oil people believe now that we're never going to get above, let's call it 103 million barrels a day of oil. So these are macro fundamental trends that BP is now starting to come to grips with, saying their oil and business is actually fundamentally... Uh, not profitable for future oil finds that they're looking for. Now, Bob Dudley, the former CEO who uh, Looney took over the company from, you mentioned in a recent episode his interview with Jason Bordoff of the Columbia Energy Exchange podcast. And you criticized him for that interview, saying that he really wasn't in touch with the reality of the changing energy markets today. So, Bob Dudley, what did he do at BP? And how might Looney change that? So, Bob Dudley came through the Amico side of the business. And then when BP and Amico merged in the 98, I think it was 1998, is when he joined BP. At the time... BP was all about gas. I mean, it was a long time ago now, but but um, natural gas was a waste fuel. It was not counted in reserves, right? So when you went to a stock analyst and they care deeply in the oil industry about reserve replacement ratio, natural gas wasn't allowed to be counted in that formula. Today, ExxonMobil, 70% of their reserve replacement ratio is natural gas. So that was Bob Dudley's education, right? It was really the power of gas. And that's what, you know, 
Lord Brown sort of inculcated in him. And, you know, and then he went to Russia. He, you know, our assets in BP were taken over by the government. And then he fled in the middle of the night and like had to be kept in a secret location because people feared for his life. I mean, those are the kinds of experiences that shaped Bob Dudley. And, but to this day, he's really just a natural gas fan. He just believes very strongly that the way BP gets there in this changing world is by converting everything to gas. Catherine, you sat down and you watched Bernard Looney's speech. What did he say? And what feels different to you? Yes. Yeah, so interestingly, he just got this job a couple weeks ago. Um, granted, he started at BP as an entry level engineer in early in his career, 1991 or something. And so he's grown up in that company. So he knows a lot about the company. So two weeks into being the CEO isn't like he's starting a job without knowing anything about it. And I spoke to Mary Street, a friend of mine who works at BP. She's a senior vice president of communications and external affairs. And she said he is setting a new direction. Um, Of course, the devil is in the details of how that's going to be executed. But the speech was pretty impressive to his employees and investors and stakeholder community, which is they're going to be reimagining energy, reinventing BP and performing while transforming. That's how he put it. And they have 10 main goals or aims As he says, five of them are internal, so they want to get to net zero across their operations on an absolute basis by 2050 or earlier. They want to get to net zero on carbon in their oil and gas production by 2050 or sooner. They want to cut their carbon intensity of their products that they sell by 50% by 2050 or sooner. They need to install methane measurement on all of their processing sites and reduce intensity by 50%. And they want to increase the proportion of investment into non-oil and gas businesses over time. And they're even saying that is going to increase while their oil and gas investment is going to decrease. And then their other five goals, those are sort of the five internal goals, the five external goals are that they want to more actively advocate for policies that support net zero, including carbon pricing. And what they would do is shift dollars from reputational advertising. So all those ads you see on TV about how awesome oil and gas are, those funds would be shifted into policy advocacy. They would incentivize their employees to, you know, to deliver on some of these goals. They would set expectations for relationships with trade associations. And that's going to come out later this month, an analysis of what trade associations they want to still affiliate with and which ones they can no longer affiliate with based on this new direction. Um, They want to be recognized as being very transparent and aligned with all these disclosure groups to make sure that people know what they do. Remember, they have had people protesting outside of their headquarters every day for a very long time. Um, And then they want to launch a new team to help others decarbonize and to look for new investments. So with these 10 aims, uh, he's really serious about this. And I think it is setting a new trajectory for the company. It will be really interesting to see in September what the details of that are and how they do plan to go to net zero on the the carbon intensity and all that. Now, We're all realists on this show, more or less. I think we all understand that the world is going to be using a lot of oil and gas for decades to come. We need to reduce that usage as much as possible. But these fossil fuel companies, while they may shift, they're still going to be selling oil and gas. Now, (laughs) what I hear, though, from these 
goals is that sure, sure they're going to be complicated. Sure, they're a massive step in the right direction. But BP is still saying, yeah, we're going to play around with the renewable stuff still, but we still see a very large future for oil and gas. And we're going to try to reduce the carbon intensity of our product uh, on a net basis. But we're not going to stop selling oil and gas. We don't see a future in which that is the case or where we significantly phase it down. Do you guys hear the same thing? Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's the, that's how the sausage is made there, right? And this is in sharp contrast, I would say, to NRG and the conversations that we had around David Crane and and him hanging on to his coal assets. In this case, BP is an investment grade entity because of its reserves, right? If it sold off all of its reserves, BP would no longer be an investment grade entity. And one of the ways for BP to make money in clean energy is by allowing people to borrow their balance sheet. So for instance, if you wanted to invest um, you know, $2 billion into clean energy into Azerbaijan, where BP has a big footprint, nobody in their right mind is investing in Azerbaijan. But BP can do that because they've got 50 government affairs people there. They actually know exactly who the people are at the European Investment Bank and the World Bank to actually work with to secure loan guarantees or credit guarantees for that investment, right? That is something that they are better at than everyone else. And that's the part that I think I still struggle with with BP, which is that when you look at their their wind and solar investments, they're pedestrian, right? You're talking about investments at NextEra or other people would have made if BP weren't making them. And so I haven't seen them really flex their muscles and say, here's how we can make a much higher rate of return in clean energy for our investors with the special powers that we have within the company. And that's, I think, what it's going to take to make this shift successful. Yeah, it seems like Looney is being given some bandwidth to do that, though. It just seems like the shareholders are giving him and their board are giving them per- him some permission to try this. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I just when I talk to people within BP or Shell, and we're actively talking to them all the time at Generate, just because our businesses overlap in the sense that Shell is like the second largest you know, electricity trader in the United States, right? And BP is one of the largest gas traders in the United States. And so we talk to them for other reasons. The challenge I find is, is that their capacity for risk outside of the oil and gas exploration business is zero. They are literally always trying to eliminate risk in gas trading, et cetera. When you ask them, would you be willing to take a 10-year look on what is going to happen to low carbon fuel standard credits in California so that, you know, we can get low cost debt on our project. They're like, oh, no, we can only look out a year, maybe two years, maybe three years. Right. And so it's actually other people that are innovating. It's not BP and Shell. They're innovating on these types of products. But it's those products where they are uniquely knowledgeable enough to make 30 percent returns in making the market, right? And I just don't see how their investors are going to tolerate the move to clean energy if they're investing in 7% return, 6% return solar and gas pro- or solar and wind projects. Let's talk about the cultural backdrop now, which I think is really important. Um, Jim Cramer, who is this prominent CNBC uh, host of Mad Money, 
um, recently he's had a, he's had a number of shows where he's he's told people to dump oil and gas stocks. And he said in a, in a recent show that he won't recommend oil stocks anymore. And he got a bunch of pushback. And here is what he said about why he's making that recommendation. I know lots of oil execs are unhappy with my stance that I think that you these are on the other side of history, so to speak. But remember, I'm not about making friends on this show. I'm about trying to make you money. And the honest truth is, I don't think I can help you make money in the oil and gas stocks anymore. They feel like a slowly melting ice cube a wasting asset that will have down revenues unless the price of crude jumps and stays higher. But after recent events, I don't know what's going to make that happen. I think this is a really big deal. When this starts to move up into popular culture, when someone like Jim Cramer echoes what a capitalist like Larry Fink from BlackRock says, uh, when he starts using the language of the sustainable investment movement as a mainstream investment thesis, that's a really big deal. And so that has to have some pressure on the Bernard Loonies of the world who are looking at this cultural shift and saying, yes, it's about making the right investments, but also the world is changing. Um, so how mu- how big of a deal is this, Catherine, when we hear someone like Jim Cramer get up on television and make a proclamation like this. Yeah, I think we're at a shift. I, I really do. So you think about where BP was 10 years ago in 2010 with the Deepwater Horizon catastrophe, and then the bottom of the pricing fell out of oil during the recession. I mean, that was not when Kramer was saying, don't invest in oil and gas. It's happening now, and we're at this inflection point, I think, where everyone is recognizing that investing is too risky. And it's not necessarily about any of these disasters at all. This is about the future and the fact that we have solutions now that are far more cheaper and better investments. Did you get a sense that Bernard Looney was echoing that sentiment at all in his speech? I got the sense that he's a he's a huge supporter and fan of BP. And yet he sees, he says, we have to shift. We have to do this. We have to change the way we do business and change. And this has to happen for the sake of the planet. I mean, it's kind of like how I've talked about with Anheuser-Busch, where they've said, we want to be selling beer beer in 3,000 years. I mean, they want to be selling product in 3,000 years. And to do that, they have to make sure the planet is still around. So they really do want to shift. And, And his attitude was... By 2050, we may not be that much into oil and gas. We may not be in our traditional industry. It remains to be seen. But he wasn't saying that's what we're going to be doing by 2050. He was really saying we are shifting as a company. And and it felt different. Of course, the proof will be in the pudding. Jigger, what do you think it means when Jim Cramer gets up there and makes statements like that and also says, hey, you know, these younger money managers, these younger investors, they're making very conscious decisions about where to put their money. And for companies that are not uh, figuring out how to decarbonize their businesses, they're just keeping their money out. And for that reason, I am also thinking about this shift as well And in terms of where I recommend putting your money. What does that mean when, when he says that? So I think Jim Cramer recognizes the way the stock market works, right? I mean, his specialty is as a technical trader, Right. It's not as a hedge fund manager that sort of bets on big, long bets. He's really like, I understand how and why a stock price goes up and down. And he's basically saying that 
the retail interest in oil and gas is at an all-time low. In fact, like there are a lot of people, as you suggest, who are going to um, their money managers and saying, I honestly don't care about your technical analysis. I don't want you to ever own any fossil fuels. And these are people in their 30s or 40s who have like taken over their family's wealth and wealth decisions. And they're just saying like, no, like we're not going to invest in this stuff. And I think he's noticing the fact that also that these companies have underperformed for 10 years. So look, I think it's a watershed moment that Jim Cramer said this on stage, similar to when when Rick Santelli was shouting in 2009, um, you know, around like mortgages and the bailout of mortgages. Like, I think that I think this actually will have reverberating impacts for some time to come. Okay, so my final thought on this is BP's decision not to put money into climate denial organizations. This is is significant. Of course, it's very hard to follow the money. But my sense is that the battlefield is just shifting. We have uh, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying that he's going to be accelerating the nation's internal combustion ban. We have Washington State, Norway, British Columbia, uh, provinces in China, France. They're all instituting or considering internal combustion engine bans. We have cities throughout the United States starting to enact bans on natural gas connections in uh, new buildings. So these companies that that still plan to sell a lot of fossil fuels are not just going to sit down. And sure, they may not be funding the most vicious climate denial organizations, but certainly they're going to be fighting this tooth and nail. So I suspect that the battle is not even close to finished. I'm really interested in seeing where BP decides it wants to stay with the trade associations and those coalitions and where it doesn't. And that should come out in the next couple of weeks or so, um, because there are organizations that are a little more complex, like American Petroleum Institute. And they have a lot of efforts to try to you know, push petroleum products, but they also do a lot on safety standards and, you know, things that are really important to employers in the industry that are separate from advocacy efforts. So there's some of those things where, you know, I assume that a lot of these companies that want to shift are still going to need to be engaged for other purposes. Um, But I think what you'll see is if there is a real misalignment of the interests of these companies with efforts to, you know, try to deny that those will be ones that will be highlighted. And we'll just see how much transparency there is. But it'll be interesting to see which which ones these companies decide to get out of. Yeah, look, I think that you have to realize that just a couple of years ago, BP spent tens of millions of dollars to kill the carbon price in Washington state. And Bob Dudley on that same podcast with Jason Bordoff, like, talked about why he did that and he thought it was unfair and it's like goes to another place where he's tone deaf. And I think like this is where where Bernard Looney is basically, in my opinion, saying that he's probably the last CEO of BP. Right? BP's like such a weak and small company in general out of the oil majors that that if they don't make this shift and if they don't make this shift completely and figure out a pathway by which shareholders start to reward their stock they will get bought by somebody. They're not that big anymore, right? I mean, you're talking about trillion-dollar companies with Apple and Microsoft and all these other things, and we're arguing about $50 billion companies here with BP and some of the other oil majors. There are a lot of private equity firms that could just buy them and take them private to fix them, 
right? And so I really do think that BP's at the like at an existential crisis point. And with all of these like local measures where people are trying to ban internal combustion engines and all this stuff, they need to figure out a way for their stock price to go up. They need to figure out what product they're selling that people actually are hopeful about in the future. And right now, they have no answers to those questions. Well, that teases our next segment nicely, which is all about natural gas bans in buildings and urban infrastructure and what the natural gas industry is doing to counter those, including pitching renewable natural gas. First, though, a quick word about our sponsors. The Energy Gang is brought to you by Energetic Insurance. If you're in solar, you know that your solar portfolios, they're only as valuable as the off-taker credit profiles. So in commercial solar, that's a more complicated because they're shifting credit that's tied to these PPAs. It's a huge risk to portfolio returns and valuation. We'll enter Energetic Insurance. They transfer this credit risk to a highly rated insurer, which gives developers and investors the confidence and certainty of cash flows required to unlock institutional capital for securitization and to expand their portfolios. So if you want a fast and easy way to provide a high credit backstop to your portfolio, go to energeticinsurance.com slash GTM. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Core Power serves the growing demand for industrial energy storage solutions. It is taking orders right now for six gigawatt hours of capacity available in 2020. Core Power is planning to build a new battery manufacturing plant right here in the U.S. And once operational, the 1 million square foot facility is going to have capacity of 10 gigawatt hours of manufacturing. And so you can get your pre-orders right now. Uh, They're going to be announcing the site for its new manufacturing plant here in 2020 pretty soon. And, you know, the renewable energy industry, people like you, need a new battery manufacturing partner to build tomorrow's grid. Core Power aims to be that partner. You can learn more at korepower.com. So let's look at downstream fossil fuel use, more specifically natural gas use. Uh, Last week, David Roberts at Vox, a friend of the show, a widely cited writer and analyst on this this subject, wrote a pretty damning and well-researched piece asserting that natural gas derived from non-fossil sources has no real part to play in deep decarbonization. The backdrop is, of course, the number of cities now banning or considering banning new natural gas connections, and the gas industry is understandably freaked out about this trend. One strategy is to push their efforts in renewable gas. Now, these efforts are genuine. They're investing a lot of money in figuring out how to tap these uh, sources of renewable natural gas. And Roberts says they're insufficient, though. He says it's mostly a PR stunt. Now, Michael Weber of Weber Energy Group at the University of Texas, who uh, is also an executive at the energy firm Angie, which sells electricity and gas, launched a really good defense on Twitter. And this has sparked a lot of discussion within the energy community. And I know Jigger has focused a lot on renewable gas. And and meanwhile, you know, we are seeing a lot of cities start to figure out how to ban natural gas infrastructure. So we wanted to tackle this subject. Jigger, what is Roberts arguing in this piece? Well, that's the sad thing about Dave's piece. I think we all love Dave, but this piece is trying to argue, I think, five different points. And it sort of confuses everything together. So right? what's confusing? So, I think the the main thrust of his article, I think, it starts from the fact that the gas utility companies funded front groups 
that were trying to become a separate third-party intervener in a public utilities commission case, which we've seen in Arizona, you know, Louisiana, and other places, and that that was just wrong on their part, and they were using dark money to do it. And I totally agree with him on that. That's right, and that is true. Right? His second point was that they were promoting renewable natural gas, and that was a way for the natural gas utilities to maintain their social license in around continuing to exist and continue to sell natural gas. And in that area, I think he falls down in a couple places, right? One is, it's absolutely true. And we're the largest producer of renewable natural gas that pipes it into California in the country at Generate Capital. So I totally get that I might be conflicted on this. But I've admitted many times that converting all of the dairy and CAFO waste in the country into... Um, renewable natural gas will maybe produce 2% of all of our natural gas consumption in the United States. So it's not like it's going to replace everything. And he makes that point well. But then he kind of goes into nonprofit talking points that I think were probably fed to him around the fact that renewable natural gas is not necessarily low carbon, which is patently false, right? The California Air Resources Board has independently verified that our RNG facilities have a negative 255 score. Negative. That means that on a net basis, that we are actually sequestering carbon versus actually like producing more, right? And so it's just one of those things where when you benchmark that ethanol, like has a carbon score of like 15, right? And so it's just one of those things where like, that's not true. And then he sort of says, well, an RNG is creating all these pollutants in frontline communities, which is also not true, right? I mean, like, we own facilities in Indiana, and they're pretty rural. They've got their own space. They're doing their thing. He's, I think, referencing the San Joaquin Valley, but even there, it's not true. So part of my issue with this piece is that it's just poorly thought out on the macro, right? I think if we start over, what we should be saying is on the macro, everyone has the natural gas utilities in their sites. We've been talking about electric utilities for the last 20 years, and now it's the natural gas utilities turn. And you've got all of these cities that have decided to ban all future natural gas connections to new buildings. And the natural gas industry is seeing that they are going to be losing their growth. And they are responding in ways that are childish, juvenile, but also expected. And now the question becomes, what should we do with the natural gas utilities? My sense is, is that we should co-opt them like we co-opted the electric utilities and figure out a way for them to be part of the future as opposed to, you know, figuring out I don't know what he was trying to say with this piece. So to summarize the main argument of the piece, Dave Roberts says natural gas utilities are scared of these regulations. They are pushing back on them and they are spending money to create AstroTurf campaigns to to create conflict. That is true. He's also saying that... Yeah. Uh, you know, biomethane, the types of renewable natural gas that we have from agricultural resources is insufficient to to meet our natural gas demand. Also, 
uh, true. But what he's conflating is saying that because these natural gas utilities are investing in renewable natural gas, uh, they are necessarily using it as a greenwashing technique, which you're saying is not true. Well, and I think he's also saying by inference that the natural gas utilities are successful in some ways, which is also not true. I mean, I've talked to most of the people at the CPUC because, I mean, our projects are part of their uh, proceedings. And they're not giving the natural gas companies an inch, right? They're absolutely demanding that they decarbonize. And they're trying to figure out what the right policy mechanism is to do that. So is the city of LA, right? The city of LA is is taking up a policy right now to like ban all new natural gas connections. And they're trying to figure out what a more thoughtful way would be to really put pressure on SoCal gas. So like no one is saying, oh, gosh, these AstroTurf groups, they've confused me. I actually might think that I should side with the natural gas industry. No one is saying that. Not a single public policy official in California is saying that, right? And so like, so I think everyone's trying to figure out how do we make this transition? There are a lot of people who depend on natural gas for heating and cooling and process heat and all sorts of stuff, right? And how do we figure out how to make this transition in a way that, you know, like sort of learns from the experience that we had over the last 20 years around renewable portfolio standards and other policy mechanisms. So there's two pieces to this conversation, and I want to separate them a little bit. One is the renewable natural gas piece and how important it is and how it's going to be used. And the other is the natural gas bans and how the industry is reacting to them. So, Catherine, how are companies like SoCal Gas responding to these bans? Uh, what are you seeing from both a lobbying and regulatory perspective? Yeah, so you are seeing, just as Jigger said, these groups like California for Balanced Energy Solutions that is supported by the gas industry out there, which is, as we talked about with BP, this reputational advertising piece, which is, you know, running around telling people that, um, you know, they're going to, the, the commission is going to rip out your gas stove. They're telling Asian restaurants, you're not going to be able to cook with woks anymore. They're saying you're not going to be able to cremate your bodies, which is grisly. Um, that stuff is, I think, easily put into one bucket and we can fight that as a, as ludicrous arguments. Um, but the other piece is like, how does the gas industry actually go forward and decarbonize in California and elsewhere? So we have the renewable natural gas piece, but we also have the issue of power plant production of natural gas versus end use natural gas. And Southern California Gas is one of about three utilities, including National Grid and Con Ed, that have been looking at demand response and how do they adjust their peaks, the peak demand on natural gas use during winter months in particular, you know, when, you're, when you've got to have heating, but you also are competing with gas for other reasons, um, you know, to try to really reduce that and make it work. And what's helping in that is actually electric technology in the form of smart thermostats. So almost 30% of households that have broadband have smart thermostats. And they're finding that if they can plug into those and allow those thermostats to control their other appliances, especially space heating for natural gas, that that will then help them lower the demand. And to me, that, is, that that's kind of the intermediate step. I think the renewable natural gas piece is further down the line for these companies because I don't think they really know 
how to manage that. I think people like Jigger are better at that. But if you look at what's happening in New England with Massachusetts, um, having to deal with demand response for gas and Michigan that has a big gas fleet and a lot of gas residential demand, they're going to need to, in order to manage natural gas and lower emissions, they're going to have to do not efficiency programs as much as natural gas demand response programs. And there's been demand response in the electric sector for a long time, but on the gas side, it's kind of a new thing. There was a 2018 study done at Department of Energy. There was another bill introduced um, last year by Senator Whitehouse from Rhode Island and Angus King from Maine in the Senate that would look at a five-year demand response pilot program using the latest technology. So I, I feel like there's a step in between as we're starting to think about how do we get renewable natural gas into the system that we really need to manage this end use as well. Well, this all sounds pretty bad for the gas industry, if you ask me. Look, the electric utility industry fought demand response for a long time, but they have since embraced renewables and batteries and residential demand response because of A, regulation, but B, they they can make money off of this stuff. I mean, you can provide new services off of distributed technologies at the customer level. The gas industry, you know, if you, they're going to lose money through demand response potentially. And a lot of customers are just going to electrify. You're not going to have a lot of electric customers transitioning to natural gas, but you are going to have a decent amount of natural gas customers transitioning to electricity. So it feels to me like there's a lot of additional pressures on the gas industry, which is why renewable natural gas does feel like an attractive alternative, um, both because they need to meet regulations, but also for PR reasons, right? They want to make themselves seem a lot cleaner. So I can understand how renewable gas comes into play and why the gas industry is fearful. I'd say this is probably going to turn out a little different. So the way the gas company makes money is the same way the electric utility makes money is by building more stuff, right? So the gas company doesn't make any money selling gas, right? So that's a strict pass-through. They buy gas, they sell gas. They make money by rate-basing building pipelines, right, and building infrastructure. I think, as we all know, the hardest part to decarbonize in the entire framework is heat, right, is industrial heat, is industrial processes, and all of those things that use natural gas. The gas company can absolutely be incentivized to rate-base all those solutions, right, and to rate-base electric heating, to rate-base, you know, other types of infrastructure, right? So the answer to this question is actually quite straightforward because we figured it out as we've tackled the, you know, the dragons that were the electric utility industry. But the challenge I would say is that this piece and the way that we're talking about it is just shouting at each other, like the Democratic debate last night. And so at some point, we just have to start getting down to fundamentals and saying, What does the gas industry do every year? They invest about $20 billion a year. How could they invest that $20 billion more productively? Here are the 10 ways they could do it more productively. What are the challenges that they could actually help us with right now in the interim? They can help balance, you know, like some of the intermittency of clean energy as battery technologies ramp up, right? And so I would say that the renewable natural gas thing 
is just a complete sideshow, right? There's real reasons for us to do renewable natural gas because we have 100 million tons of food waste in this country. We don't know what to do with it all, so we bury it in landfills. Converting into renewable natural gas is just a far more sensible way of doing it and capturing all the methane so it doesn't go into the atmosphere. The same thing's true with CAFO waste, which right now ends up in our waterways, and it'd be better to figure out a way to do something more productive with it. Will it replace our natural gas consumption? No. But I do think that there are positive ways for the gas utilities to use their rate-making and rate-basing mechanism to be able to help us decarbonize our energy system. And that is the conversation we should all be engaging in, because that's the conversation that moves things forward. Well, I had so much more to talk about. That seems like a great place to end it, though. I suspect we have another episode coming up about renewable natural gas. And green hydrogen. That's right. That's right. The world's biggest green hydrogen fan, Jiggershaw. Let's go to our last topic in Virginia where Catherine was born and raised. The Virginia state legislature has passed sweeping legislation that clears the way for a surge in battery storage, solar, and offshore wind. The Virginia Clean Economy Act, as it's called, foresees 5.2 gigawatts of offshore wind. It sets up one of the largest storage trends. It mandates 100% clean electricity by either 2045 or 2050 and brings Virginia into compliance with the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is that uh, carbon trading scheme that's been around for a while in the Northeast. Separately, on the same day, Dominion Energy, the state's gigantic power provider, announced net zero emissions by 2050. It's true that a lot of utilities have now laid out similar targets, but few utilities were more synonymous with coal than Dominion. And now it looks like all six of Dominion's coal plants in Virginia could be shut down within 10 years. Big deal here in Virginia. Uh, A lot more needs to happen politically before this gets over the finish line. But uh, Catherine, give us the rundown of what's in the Clean Economy Act here. Yeah, so there are four big pillars of it. One is decarbonization. One is filling in with renewables. One is prioritizing energy efficiency. And the final one is really unlocking rooftop solar. And what this does is it would take Virginia at zero, at nowhere, to really moving up in one legislative session to potentially, you know, not at the top of the list, but certainly a player, and especially in energy efficiency. And this has been a result of a work of a lot of stakeholders coming together renewable and energy efficiency industries, the low-income communities, the environmental groups, the utilities. And then this affects only Dominion and Appalachian Power, not the co-ops. So just to be clear, it's just the investor-owned utilities. Um, All of these groups working together in both the House and Senate. And also notable is that in the House, and the House version and Senate version differ. So the House version has, they all have the same pillars, but the House version goes further and faster with the goals. And the reason for that is not only because of the more progressive Democrats that were elected, but also because there are a lot of Republicans that are these anti-crony capitalism folks who are aligned as well. And so this combination of Democrats and Republicans in the House have really not been afraid to take on Dominion, which has been you know, the most powerful force in the Commonwealth. Um, The Senate is 
of course, a little bit more conservative, in part because the Senate Majority Leader Dick Saslaw is very close to Dominion. He's also the chair of the Commerce and Labor Committee, which is the one that put together this bill. And so he's more aligned with what Dominion would be okay with. The House has been willing to take it further because of bipartisan support. So now they're at a place where they have these two bills they need to reconcile and, you know, the the issue is going to be how is that done in a way that brings all the stakeholders on board, that brings the governor into the mix, and that allows a transparent process whereby we can really make progress in the Commonwealth. Now, not to undersell Virginia here, but uh, you, we could run down the list of what's in this plan. And that would be kind of boring now because we have a number of states that have enacted pretty ambitious targets for offshore wind and solar and so forth. It's a really big deal for a state like Virginia. But I'm really interested in the politics here. What is moving the the needle in a state like Virginia? So, Catherine, you hinted at it. Is it that there's this public pressure and that a powerful utility like Dominion is willing to cave on its lobbying and and not push as hard? Or is it that you have more forceful lawmakers who are willing to cut deals and actually do something or a combination thereof? What has changed in a state like Virginia? Yeah, so Dominion did not ease up on its lobbying. Let me make it clear. They put more (laughs) into the last election than they've ever put into it, and they lost. So people were elected regardless of Dominion's money, and in fact, in spite of Dominion's money. And you also have this huge pent-up demand. Here is a state surrounded by states that have been leaders. You know, I, I hear my brother who lives in Appalachia in southwestern Virginia saying, we're losing all our jobs to North Carolina because they've created an industry where we shouldn't be losing those jobs. We should be building Virginia. So there's this pent-up demand, and there's also just a willingness by the politicians to say, we don't care what Dominion wants. We want to open up for business. This is an indication of just how dramatically the politics have changed. I remember, gosh, it must have been 2014, 2013. I was at a small solar conference and people got up and talked on stage about Virginia's solar market. And they were like, well, this machine and tools tax is in place and it's really preventing us from building out solar. And they were focused on this really arcane but important uh tax that had been codified and was preventing uh, solar installations from going forward. And now all of a sudden we had this like massive sweeping bill with gigawatts and gigawatts of offshore wind with lawmakers across party lines banding together with really big solar targets, um, potentially opening up a competitive landscape for rooftop solar. That's, uh, you know, five or six years isn't a lot of time. And so it shows how far we've come. And it's been in one legislative cycle. Don't get me wrong. Like The people who have been advocating for this, they say, don't ever do this to us again. (laughs) It has been really, (laughs) it's been really a lot of work to get this far and we're not done. So there is a big issue of whether they conference these two bills and by conference, that means the committees get together behind closed doors and talk it out. And what might come out of that would be the Senate and and you know Senator Saslaw really being able to run roughshod over everybody else and having something that the rest of the coalition can't support. So this there's a coalition that's been trying to make sure that everything is transparent, that everybody's working together to get this over the finish line. And what they really need is to have a process where the governor is very involved and can manage that rather than having it behind closed doors. Totally. Jigger, what does Virginia mean? So I, you know, was one of the members of the Maryland, D.C., Virginia Solar Energy Association when it was only like six of us that met for pizza (laughs) at the, you know, like Audubon Society shelter. 
And uh, one of the guys there is named Mitch King, who frankly has spent 20 years educating lawmakers and passing little bills here and there, you know, things like getting out of doing a sales tax or getting out from underneath XYZ. And I just think that when you think about where we are right now, we don't actually have a bill, to be clear, right? Solar and this, the wind guys, like, you know, they get the Senate version, the House version. But if they don't reconcile, it could be on the cutting room floor. The session ends in March, um, March 7th, I think. And then the governor has two months to sign it. Um, so we're not out of the woods yet. And we're not going to know for another couple of weeks and maybe months. But this has been, I think, the most progress that we've made in a very long time. And I do think that this really is down to economic development. I think one of the big, big players here has been Orsted and their work on the offshore wind farm, because Dominion is going to make a gargantuan amount of money by rapacing that wind farm. Um, And so part of this is like, there's an enormous carrot over here for Dominion to keep them occupied while the rest of these other things get through. Um, But it's a long time coming, I have to say. I mean, it's just, I've spent a lot of time with politicians in Virginia for years, and they were almost always just negatively inclined around all of it. Renewable energy, Reggie, joining Reggie, you know, figuring out how to work more closely with the PJM. Like all of the things that we take for granted Everyone from Democratic governors who've, you know, largely dominated the last 20 years um, to, you know, Democratic senators couldn't be bothered. So this is an enormous sea change. And it's a real um, it's a real, you know, sort of kudos to the people on the ground who've been spending a lot of time organizing and helping to get these new folks elected into the House and Senate in Virginia. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the economic benefits could be enormous. Like Virginia Commonwealth University said you could create over 29,000 local solar jobs that would be potential for $4.3 billion of economic investment. I mean, this could be huge for the Commonwealth and really um, put us into the forefront, but it is so important for people. So if you live in Virginia, if you do business in Virginia, if you have an aunt in Virginia, if you've even visited Williamsburg, call the governor. (laughs) I don't care anything. Call the governor and say, we want you to be part of this process. Work with the stakeholders and get the best bill that you can, because it is possible. And I think we are right at the edge of having it. um, But the governor needs to hold tight. Time for our free electrons. Catherine, when you're busy tying up the phones to the Virginia governor's office and you finally get him on the phone and he says, "Okay, Catherine, what's up? What free electron are you going to share? I would say, Governor, in addition to making sure that this bill gets over the finish line and that you sign it so we can transform the Commonwealth of Virginia, you need to read the fact book by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. There are a bunch of reports, actually, that have come out in the last week or so. One is the Bipartisan Policy Center's American Energy Innovation Council report, which is pretty good about, you know, like, how do we need to spur innovation and clean energy um, another one is the solar job census, which I always love that shows, you know, how solar jobs have done over the last 10 years. And then my favorite is always every year, the Bloomberg NEF, along with the Business Council for Sustainable Energy, they put out a fact book um, every year. And today they're going to have a big briefing in Congress that I'm going to go to. Um, 
And they're, they're great resources online. They have lots of slides and summaries and, you know, infographics and things. But just to show, you know, what the market has been like for clean energy over the last decade. And it's pretty astounding. So it's worth taking a look at. Give us a fact. Oh, geez. Hang on. Okay. Power generation from coal slipped to only 23% in 2019 from 27% the year before. 12 gigawatts of coal plants closed in 2019, and the trend is going to continue with 14 gigawatts announced to close in the next three years. That's just one little factoid. Hmm. Well, we love fact books, so we'll make sure to check it out. Jigger, when you're touring a farm and you're putting your stick in the manure pile to stir it around <laughs> and figure out if the feedstock is just right for renewable natural gas. What are you uh, muttering to yourself? What free electron are you are you thinking about? Wow, vivid image. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to be talking about any free electrons while I'm stirring mud but uh, or manure. But I did want to recognize a couple of things this week. One was um, um, Rajendra Pachori uh, passed away this last week. He was the real, you know, sort of powerhouse behind the IPCC and the many thousands of scientists that worked on it. And um, he resigned, you know, following allegations of sexual harassment by a 29-year-old employee at Terry. But I think when you look at his broader influence, this is a guy who was largely educated in the United States and, um, you know, went to go run the Tata Energy Research Institute, which is now called the Energy Research Institute. And, you know, really, I think, set a lot of the foundational pieces in India for them to be where they are today, right? And to educate the thousands and thousands of people in India that are PhDs in these topics and are leading the revolution of clean energy there um, to the point where uh, you've got, you know, coal and natural gas use going down in India today. And then for him then to take this global position um, and then win the Nobel Prize with um, Al Gore is just a huge accomplishment. And I, I, I do think we should recognize him um, this week, uh, you know, for a life well lived. Well, I'll close off on some climate politics. Last night, of course, we're recording this on a Thursday morning. So on Wednesday night, the Democratic candidates got together in Nevada and had their latest debate. And uh, climate was brought up. And Nevada's governor said that he's going to be judging these candidates based on their climate positions, which I thought was really powerful. And that's because, once again, the polling shows that for Democratic voters in a state like Nevada, climate change is a really high priority. It's actually the second highest priority for Democratic voters in that state. And I mean, I think we've known this for a long time, but this election cycle in particular has really showed people all across the spectrum, the socioeconomic and demographic spectrum really care about climate change. And I was reading this article from the Nevada Current about the debate, and uh, there were some people post there are some people who commented like we actually wanted the candidates to talk more about how climate change is going to impact uh, workers in the state that they focus a little bit too nationally on the issue and internationally on the issue and rather they they really wanted to hear people talk about how it's going to impact folks within Nevada which is you know facing serious water supply issues um, you know just much higher temperatures and 
I thought that that was really striking that both the governor said that he'll be judging the candidates based on their climate positions and that residents really wanted explicitly this local focus on how climate change is going to impact them. The polling is really powerful this election cycle. Yeah, I got to I got to say I was watching that and trying to tweet about it. And none of these candidates know how to speak cogently about real solutions to climate change. I mean, Vice President Biden just had like a word salad of all the words he'd heard that had anything to do with clean energy. And it it just I was really disappointed because I was hoping somebody would say something really specific to Nevada, as you mentioned. Well, Elizabeth Warren didn't. I mean, she said that we didn't have the technologies needed to tackle climate change today. I mean, it's just on the Latino side, I'd say that like, I mean, I was on the board of Greenpeace for a while and we knew back then that 75% of Latinos believe climate change is real and Latinos more than any other subsegment of the U.S. population tie directly pollution and public health. These candidates really have to separate themselves and figure out how to message on this issue better because the voters want it. Well, more importantly, if one of them gets in the White House, we all better put our shoulders and hips into making sure that this is a top issue for them. My hips won't lie. (laughs) (laughs) What What a great place to end the show, I think. Uh, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my co-hosts. You can find us all on social media on Twitter. So uh, if if you want to send us some notes on the stories that we, we covered, you know, please do so. We read everything. We factor them into how we structure the show, and we really appreciate it. Even if we can't get back to you, we read our messages, and we read uh, the people who tag us in on Twitter. You can also find Ingrid Lobet there on Twitter. She's often sending out links to our stories and commenting about what's happening on the show coming up, so make sure to follow her there. She's our senior editor, so thanks to her for helping us out with the show. We are a co-production between Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. We will catch you next week when there's sure to be more crazy announcements from companies and governments and people and billionaires. And this industry has really taken it off, and we will be there podcasting along with it. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy from Green Tech Media.